Um, for the sake of time, I, I want to jump right back uh, into the Gospel of Mark. If, if I don't know you, my name is Sean. I'm a lead pastor here, Redemption Peoria, and Vince already talked about all that. We've been going through the book of Mark for a while now, um, and as we hit the summer, we're going to continue to flow through it. We've been meeting on Sundays for about um, almost three, four months. I don't know exactly. We started February 8th, so um, we are at this point in, in Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to say something I've said every week and, um, and add some stuff to it because it's important. So we've been going through um, the Gospel of Mark, and every time we go through it on Sunday, I say the same thing. So this is the first time for you, this is going to be the first time you hear this, um, but if you've been coming every week, you've heard this every week, that we, we pick up the Gospel of Mark, and we're going through it to find out who Jesus is, because as you go through the Gospel of Mark... Nobody knows who Jesus is except the demons. Now, I've said that every week, and the reason that is important is, is because as you pick up um, Mark and you're reading through it, you're seeing that truth take place until you get to chapter 15. At the very end of the book of Mark, you see one man recognize who Jesus is, and it's important because uh, the writer of a book called The Vision of the Moral, uh, the Moral Vision of the New Testament um, says this, uh, this moment in, in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, where there's this centurion who looks at Jesus on the cross, and he recognizes him. He says, surely this was the Son of God. And, and the author of the Moral Vision of the New Testament says the reason that Mark lays it out like this is because he wants us to, uh, to, to, to see that Jesus, from the human perspective, can only be seen as Jesus as the crucified Jesus. So the only person in the Gospel of Mark who sees Jesus for who he is, who finally recognizes, audibly professes, that's Jesus, is the man who looks at Jesus on the cross. Now the reason this is important is because today... Um, we're going to get into the rugged nature of discipleship. Uh, my goal, and I think um, as we, we really go at this text, is going to push against all the, the, the confines of consumerism, all the confines of uh, comfortability, and we're going to see, as the, the centurion soldier looks at Jesus, I see Jesus, but I recognize he's a crucified Jesus. The, the, the one that I follow, that road seems a lot harder than I was originally promised, and we're going to see what that rough road of discipleship looks like. Now, Patrice just read a ton of verses, and you'll see as we go through this, this is going to present a very hard, um, very intense, rugged road of discipleship. So um, when we first pick it up, uh, we read this passage, if you were here last week, from uh, he went away from there, starting in, in, um, in verse 6. Uh, I'm sorry, starting in, in uh, where, where are we at? Oh, yeah, verse, verse 1 in chapter 6, sorry. Um, and, and up to this point, what has been taking place is um, Jesus has been going around. He, you know, we f- start very early in his ministry. He says he's bringing this kingdom, and then he shows us what that kingdom looks like because he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. Um, he calms storms. He's, he's going, he goes across the sea as he calms a storm. He casts out a bunch of demons there. He comes back. The crowds are around him. And last week, we spent some time on faith because there's this woman who touches his garments, and as she touches them, she's healed. And Jesus goes to um, this man's house and heals his daughter, and she She's healed, and it's just this whole crazy thing. Jesus is showing how powerful he is. And in the midst of that, we read uh, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it again. Specifically, we focused on the faith piece of it, right? Because he's going to go to his hometown, as we just read, um, and we're going to read right now. um, And the people there reject him. They don't have faith. This is what it says, and we're going to focus on something different because uh, all these passages really do tie together uh, in in kind of a cool way. This is what it says, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? 
Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and, and Hosis? I never know how to pronounce his name. And Judas and Simon are not uh, his sisters here with us. And then listen to this, this uh, little statement before verse 3 finishes out. And they took offense to him. Okay, let's come back. We'll come back to that. And Jesus said to them, the prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So, so I want you just to, to see this. Jesus, by his own affirmation in the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and you read any of the Gospels, and the way that Paul presents this dude is Jesus is this one before the foundations of the earth. The prophets, as Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 talks about, the prophets came, and they, they preached for one time, but now God sent his very own son. We find out Jesus is part of this trinity. He is God in the flesh, that all things surrender to him. He could stand on the circle of the earth and he's ordering things by his hand hail waits to come to the ground waters move forth he makes the boundaries of the oceans he is awesome and as he puts all that on a shelf he comes to the earth and he's rejected by his childhood buddies he's rejected by his parents he's rejected by his friends he's rejected so people now suddenly as he comes to his own people are like whoa wait a minute aren't you the dude i know And so even though he has all this, even though he is that awesome, he now comes in this moment and he's rejected. Now, this is this is a big deal because the people take offense to him. You're 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 not they they, they make him common. Now, here's here's the trick in all this. Um, Jesus clearly lays out us two very profound things as he spends time with his father because he, he, you know, he goes away and he goes away and prays and he's spending time with his father. He's, he's doing this and, and, and what we recognize is Jesus is constantly being obedient to what his father wants him to do. And you know what's crazy about that? There's really only two results when he does that. I mean, as Jesus continues to go away and pray to his dad, and he goes to his dad, and he says, here's what, what do we want to do? Okay, I'm going to go do it here. And he goes around. There's only two really things that we see throughout the entire, all four uh, gospels that Jesus, two things happen. One, he constantly gives himself away. Everywhere the dude is going, he's either healing someone, he's either casting out demons, he's washing people's feet, he's calming people's fears by common storms, he's just giving himself away constantly, over and over and over and over again. And the second thing that he does is he only finds, in being obedient to his father, suffering and pain. Like, this is, this is the life of Jesus. Read the Gospels. Like, he'll go away, spend some time with his dad, he comes out, it's like, all right, I'm going to be obedient to what you want me to do. Serve, serve, serve experience some type of rejection, serve, serve, cast out, experience some type of rejection, Pharisees making fun of me, Pharisees saying this, now I'm going to go to a cross, even here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sitting there, God, here's, I know I don't want to do this, but I'm going to be obedient to what you want me to do, I get flogged, they get a crown of thorns, I get crucified, over and over, he serves, he gives himself away, and he suffers in pain, those are the two things that we see this Jesus over and over, now, the reason that's important, the reason I wanted to kind of lay a foundation for us is because at the end of our section there, that section, at the very end of verse 6, this is what it says. And he went among the villages teaching. So Jesus gets rejected, and what we find is what Jesus has always done. 
He's going to villages, he's serving, and he's getting rejected. He's going to towns, he's serving, and he's getting rejected. And Jesus, in all of his sovereignty and all of his beauty and the poetry and way he lays it out, says, here's the deal. I'm not going to be here forever, so I'm going to pass on what I am doing to my disciples. And so this is where we pick up verse 7. This becomes very, very important for us. This is what it says. And he, talking about Jesus, called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Verse 10. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust on your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with, uh, with I'm sorry, anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. Patrice, you're right. That is tough to read. Um, Okay, so, so, so I just want to make this clear, what's taking place here. Jesus, as we see, just verse 7, I want you to notice um, uh, the, the pronouns here. So, so he, so he goes out, he called the 12 disciples to send them out to, gave them authority. He charged them to take nothing, uh, verse 10, and he said to them, and then I want you to look, as soon as the quotations start, Jesus, I want you to notice the change in direction and who we're talking about now. Jesus looks and he goes, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any of you will not receive you, then they will not listen to you when you leave shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them so that they went out and proclaimed talking continue about the disciples so jesus a rugged life of discipleship says i'm going village to village i'm giving my life i'm serving to the point of death as even as we find in philippians 2 that even to the point he was obedient to his father death on a cross here's jesus he goes and he says i'm going to pass that burden this yoke of mine to you Now you go to villages. Now you be obedient. Now you go cast out demons. Now you go heal the sick. You go. Now there's there's something obviously very unique that's happening with the 12 disciples here because he's talking to these 12 apostles and we find in in Ephesians 2.20 that they're, um, we're told that they're the foundation of our faith. They lay this foundation. Matter of fact, in, in Matthew 19, it says that the 12 disciples, these specific 12 disciples will actually judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's some theological nuances that are kind of odd for us to get our mind around. But here's what you got to understand. What takes place for Jesus as he passes it on? The very beginning, he says, hey, listen, I don't want you to take a sword. I don't want you to take a belt. I don't want you to take an extra tunic. I don't want you to take any of this because here's the deal. I'm sending you out to rely on me. So I've relied on my father. Everywhere I've gone, the son of man has no place to rest his head. Everywhere I've gone, I've relied on my father to take care of me. And now I'm sending you out to do all the things that I have done. Now, though it's specific to the 12 disciples, here's what's crazy. As you pick up the book of Acts, which is right after the gospels, it's the apostles teaching, these 12 men, it's their teaching that the church follows. So, so I need you to understand this. Track with me because it's about to get serious with John the Baptist. Super serious. The dude eats bugs. So here is Jesus. Jesus lives a life of pain, suffering, and giving. That's what Jesus does. Okay? As Jesus looks to his disciples and says, I'm going to send you out. And he says in one place, that sheep among wolves, I'm going to send you out. And as he sends out his disciples, he tells them to do the same thing that he's been doing. And the disciples, as they learn this process, spending time with Jesus, pass that tradition on to us. So that Christians now, in absolutely the same way, would rely on their father the same way Jesus did. That we, at our core, have been blessed, not so we can hoard our treasures, 
so we can buy an extra car, so that we can give away. We have been saved so that we can tell people about that salvation. Because you know what happens when we don't? You know what takes place when we don't see the rugged path of discipleship? We become like the Israelites in the Old Testament. And we become so self-indulged, so self-introspective. We only care about what's going on within ourselves. And though there are moments that that takes place, absolutely, we cannot deny the path of discipleship is one of going, no, but I have been blessed to be a blessing I've been given so that I can give. Almost once a week, I will look at my, my sons because they're not sharing. And I say, Corbin, whose image are you made in? made in God's. And he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. Is God a share? Yes, God's a share. Then what does that make you? A share. If you, you are made in his image, you submit to his will, then you are like your father. And your father, his mercy never runs out. His patience never runs out. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives to the point of death, death even on a cross. He doesn't count himself as equality with God, but he humbles himself. He doesn't look at himself greater than anyone else, but he humbles himself to the point of death, death on a cross. Now, um, the, the trick in all this is understanding, um, and, and maybe not understanding, but not getting uh, mixed up in the, the extreme version. Give me some grace here. The extreme version of what this can, can incite, right? Because when I begin to talk about this, maybe some of you who are like me, um, you just, you're going to swing the pendulum. You're like, all right, I'm selling everything I have, okay? Because I've been there. First, first year of marriage, um, Candace and I, we're in our house, and I'm reading John the Baptist story, and I'm like, no, dude, I'm going to be like John the Baptist. So I tell her, I'm going to be like, I'm going to go live in the desert for three days. No joke, okay? I canceled that, though, because I was scared of snakes, okay? So I'm like, but you know what? Fine. We're going to sell everything. So we take everything in our house. When I say everything, I mean everything, and I put it out on the driveway, and we sell it. We get like 400 bucks. I was like, dang it, okay? We give all the money to the church. We, we sell everything, and then we're just sitting on carpet against walls for the next, like, year, okay? Now, here's, here's the thing. Um, I am not saying, and we're going to get into this in a second, that you having things is a bad thing. You know what the issue is? That those things in your mind are your things. It's not that you have too much. It's that you have too much of your stuff. That's the problem. That you, you have, it's, it's your TV, it's your house, it's your car. And man, I, I would push against that for a second. Has there even been a thought in your mind that, that maybe if he asked you to walk away from those things, would you be willing? Because no tunic, no extra money, no sword. I'm sending you out. Now, now listen, we can, we, we can swing, right, to the poverty gospel. But, but the, the, the issue isn't that you have too much stuff. The issue is that you have too much of your stuff. You know, we just bought a house. Candace and I just bought a house, and I'm trying to deck this thing out, okay? I'm trying to put trees in, white picket fence, trying to live the dream, all right? Now, here's the deal. Um, at any moment, the thing I have to constantly push back against is, is, um, is getting comfortable um, in as if these things are the pinnacle of my life. To think for a moment that the white picket fence with the vines growing over the archway, it looks super sick, um, okay? That, that the swing attached to the, the, the tree, as we look at it, we're going to guard it, right? Like, to think that this is it, to think that this is what life is all about, I, I would be foolish. To not hold these things with open hands, to go at any moment, God, like, 
I have these things for whatever reason. There's, there's a kid halfway around the world right now dying of starvation, and, and I have this. Now, now, what do you want me to do with this? I, I don't know what you want. I have it for a reason. What do you want me to do with it? And without that mentality, we get caught in the wave of consumeristic comfortability and we lose sight of the cross, the rugged road of discipleship, the road that Jesus lays out in front of us. This is what we've been called to. So here's, here's um, how we process this, because this first section that we read is Jesus clearly giving us an example that he is rejected by his own, that he clearly lives a life of giving, rejection, pain, and suffering. And then he gives us some practical ways for us to live that out, as we just read. But then we get this example in John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist has always been my favorite character in the Bible for many, many reasons. Um, I, yeah, like there's one point where John the Baptist is called the greatest man born among women. Jesus says that. And I'm always, I, I remember when I first got saved, I asked my, my youth pastor, I was like, could I be greater than John the Baptist? And he said, no. Um, and I was like, I'll show you. Um, let me, uh, let, me, let me read uh, uh, something to you uh, about John the Baptist. And, and as we get into this, here, here's how, how I want you to, to process this. So um, if we're going to submit to God, because this is, this is the trick, right? This, is, this is, becomes real difficult. Um, if we're going to submit to who God is and what he's called us to do, that everything we own is his, that, that um, man, that, though we want people to be around community and though we want to enjoy food, food is so good. We, we actually make it a, 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 a mandatory part of being in a community. If you're a community leader, you have to supply food. You have, because we feel like there's something around. So yes, eat around other believers, enjoy that, but there's also time for fasting. Okay? Like, yes, continue to be around each other, encourage each other, hold each other accountable, but there's also a time to be amongst the lost and lonely. So, so for us not to get swept up into just this pathway, but to understand there are these things that Jesus puts in front of us that are hard, that some of us have been avoiding because they're hard. Because this is not the easy path of discipleship. But again, it is the rugged road of discipleship. And John the Baptist is a crazy example of that. Crazy example. Now, here's, here's what we know. We've already ran into John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. He's six months older than Jesus. Matter of fact, um, John the Baptist is in um, Elizabeth's uh, uh, womb, and uh, Elizabeth is Mary's sister, right? So um, in the womb, and Jesus is, we'll say, John the Baptist is nine months, about to, to give birth, and, and Mary comes in, and she's three months. And as Mary comes up to um, Elizabeth, Jesus in her womb, John the Baptist actually jumps in her womb weird stuff, right? Okay. So there's something going on with John the Baptist. This dude's like whole nother level crazy. And so he is, he's born. And as he's born, what we know about him is he is to pave the way for his cousin, Jesus, the Messiah. He was prophesied about in the Old Testament that there's going to be somebody who prepares this way. And we met him in Mark chapter one. And what we found was this guy has no qualms about telling anybody what's on his mind. So he looks at the Pharisees and says, you're a group of snakes, right? Okay. He, he doesn't care about his hair. Um, he, he's just eating bugs to survive. He's just like grabbing a honeycomb and just eating it like a bear. Okay. He doesn't care. He's the original honey badger. And so he, so, so here's what, what, what we see. So, um, verse 14 says this King Herod heard of it. What is it that, that Jesus is now sending out his disciples and Jesus, name is getting known. And so Herod's like, what's going on? What, what's this Jesus dude all about? So he heard of it for Jesus's name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miracles, miraculous powers are at work, uh, in him. So, so 
here's what we know. We haven't met John the Baptist until chapter 1. Now all we know is that he's dead. Okay? So we just pick it up. It's like, some say that John the Baptist raised from the dead. And if you're just reading through Mark, you're like, wait a minute, when did he die? Okay? So now we know that John the Baptist is dead. Yeah, there you go. Verse 15. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like the one, of the, uh, one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So um, there's going to be an encounter that we're about to read. I want to read a quote from you just so you kind of get your mind around um, uh, what, this, what uh, John the Baptist is out. This is from a guy named Kent Hughes, um, Kent R. Hughes. This is what it says. John was a miracle child, not in the sense of a virgin birth, but because he was born to the aged priest Zach- uh, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth long after the time it was biologically feasible for them to have children. Their son was also a Nazarite from birth due to the explicit orders um, of the angel Gabriel. As such, his hair was never cut. He never touched a dead body or drank fermented drink, according to number six. John was from childhood uniquely alive to God. So Herod is afraid of Jesus being John the Baptist. Now, here's what's crazy. We're going to read a passage in Mark that is explicitly the only passage that does not mention Jesus. This is the only passage in all of Mark that is about someone else. Now, that's a big deal. So let's read why Herod is so afraid of John the Baptist and why he is a perfect example of the rugged road of discipleship. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of, the, uh, of Herodias, which Herodias is uh, um, like his, his wife. So Herod um, is like the, the first lady. Um, his brother Philip's wife, uh, his brother Philip's wife, for, uh, because he had married her, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So here's what we know. Um, Herod is afraid that John the Baptist has come from the dead because Herod is killed the John the Baptist. And we'll get there in a second. But the reason that he killed John the Baptist is because Herod took his brother Philip's wife and said, well, you're my wife now. And John said, no. And again, remember, John don't care. He doesn't care. So he's like, hey, that's wrong. Give her back. And Herod's like, no. And he's like, yes. And he's like, no. Okay. So um, now, now, Herodias is sitting there, and she's going, I don't like this guy. I don't want to go back to my original husband. Who are you? And she wants to kill him, but she can't because Herod kind of likes the guy. He's like, like a masochist. He's like, I love how he makes fun of me so much and tells me all the things I'm doing wrong. And so he likes, he likes that, that John keeps coming at him, right? And so what we find um, is, is pretty crazy. But an opportunity, verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with, um, with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Let's stop. Summarize. So 
She wants him dead. The wife wants him dead. He doesn't want him dead. He's, John the Baptist is bound in prison. But there's this opportunity that comes up because her original daughter with Philip, um, her, her daughter starts doing a dance amongst all the military commanders, the high noblemen, the, the, the guys with prestige. And Herod's like, that was awesome. And everyone's happy. And he looks at her and says, listen, that was so great. I'll give you whatever you want. Just half a, up to half of my kingdom. You can take anything. So she comes over and says, what should I ask for? Well, what do you think she's going to ask for? She, she's wanted this thing from day one. She says, I want John the Baptist dead. So she comes back and says, I want John the Baptist dead. Give me his head on a platter. Okay. And so now, um, the king is, is upset by this. So she came in immediately with haste. We've already read that. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word in front of her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison. And he, and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, this story seems super random, but here's what's crazy. Um, I've, I've said this already, that John, according to Jesus, is the greatest man born among women. Biblically, here's Jesus, the greatest, all other men, the greatest man born among women is John the Baptist, which helps us do something, doesn't it? It gives us a litmus test. It gives us a bar. It gives us something to base results on. Because if John is the greatest man born among women, then we can see John's life and go, well, that must be considered great. Now, in no way am I saying we need to like start following John. My, my, my point is this. Um, it's not the swing of, of and, and I don't want to, you know, I continue to paint them as enemies, but like it's not the mass crowds following you. It's not all the friends you have. It's not the televangelists. That, but, but if we look at greatness, according to Jesus, the greatest man born among women was born. He lived in a desert. He went about and told people to repent because the Messiah is coming, and he prepared the Messiah. He, 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 the dude never brushed his hair. He, he ate bugs. He, he didn't love a woman. He didn't, he didn't have children. He didn't have earthly comforts. If, if this is great, here he is, and then he should be rewarded. Yet John the Baptist, a perfect example of the greatest man born among women, the rugged road of discipleship, sits in front of us. And how is he rewarded? Is he given up to half the kingdom? Is he given cars? Is he given money? Is he made a king? No, he's not. Because you know what? His king isn't. Very similar to his king that he follows. His cousin whom he knew from childhood is crucified. John the Baptist in a moment is beheaded because a wicked mom asked for a head based on a teenage dance. That's the reward. That's the reward of, uh, uh, that John the Baptist, the greatest man born among women, is given. So what's my point? Um, my, my, my point is this. Uh, the first section gives us this great example of what Jesus did and how he's rejected. And he lays this out and he, and he puts this in front of us. And, and then you have this, here's the call, the same as to us, that we are to rely on God. Um, and, and then you get this perfect example in who John the Baptist is, this rugged road of discipleship. Um, and, and, and what I love about this is before John dies, we get a glimpse of what's going on in his mind. And I think it's perfect for us because, um, and some of you, like, you're struggling because you've lost a family member. Some of you are trying to follow Jesus, and you feel like every time you get closer to Jesus, it gets harder. 
Every time you get closer to Jesus, it seems like things get worse. And you're sitting there wondering, Jesus, if I'm following you, why are you allowing this to happen? And what's great is you think that you're off the path, but John the Baptist gives us a perfect example to show us you're actually on the path because as John the Baptist is in prison, he's sitting here in this cell, which is most likely this um, pit that they throw him in. He's sitting in this cell waiting and he has these questions because he's hearing rumors of this Messiah Jesus who's out drinking at parties, who's out turning water into wine. And he's wondering, did I get this thing right? And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, like, dude, am I off here? Because I feel like I'm trying to follow you and everything's going bad. And this is what takes place, this specific account um, in this. It says in in, uh, Luke 7, verses 20 through 23. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John sends his disciples. Hey, Jesus, are you the one or do we need to look for somebody else? Is there another Messiah? Did I get this wrong? Sorry, I lost my place. That was dramatic effect. In that hour, he healed many people. So Jesus turns, heals many people and diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. So Jesus heals a bunch of people. And he answered them. And he looks at his disciples. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Listen to verse 23. This is the hinge of everything we're talking about this morning. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus heals these people. And he looks at John's disciples and says, I want you to go back. He doesn't give him explicit answer. I want you to notice that. I want you to go back and tell him the blind see, the deaf hear, all the poor are receiving the gospel. I'm doing amazing works. And also, blessed is the one who's not offended with me. You know what's crazy is when we first started our passage, Jesus goes to his hometown, and, and what are they with him? They're offended with him. And so here, now Jesus claiming in who he is and doing things the way that he should be doing them, he looks at John the Baptist and says, hey, John, um, just notice all these things, and blessed are you, though you're sitting in a cell, getting ready to die, blessed are you if you are not offended with me. Trust me. So um, I'm going to read something really long. Um, it is my favorite fiction book um, of all time, and I know that's a, a big statement uh, for me. Um, I, I am a huge fan of an author called Gene Edwards. Um, I've always loved Gene. It's super simple writing. I'm not a, like, I can't read, you know, long weighty stuff and so I, I love reading this guy that he writes these um fictional books that are basically um stories in the bible that he would add to right so he tells once one of his stories is um uh the tale of three kings which is a story of david and he, and he adds stories of absalom david and saul and how all these difference and it's a lesson in humility well he tells this story um called The Prisoner in the Third Cell, and it's the story of John the Baptist. Now, I normally would not take this long. If you've been here before, you know I wouldn't take this long to read this, but this is my favorite section in any book anywhere, okay? Like this is, if I could take a, a page and a half of something and read it, this is by far my favorite section. So, so here's what I, I want to do. It is um, a dramatic reading, which I'll do my best, um, of this, of this account of John the Baptist and he's sitting in a cell and I need you to use your imagination here because I I think it gets at what's happening with John the Baptist and hopefully it gets at us for disciples as we begin to wonder what is Jesus doing as he continues to remind us that we shouldn't rely on this world. 
as he continues to remind us that it's not about this. Matter of fact, before I read it, John, the, John Piper has a great quote. This is what he says. I love this quote. Uh, he says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. Before you know it, I am calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people's uh, perishing missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not what God can do. It is a terrible sickness, and I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward the wartime mindset. So the reason I read that to you is by me doing this reading of this prison in the third cell, I need you to picture, and I hope to remind you that it's more than just cars and houses, and it's more than just the way that we raise our children. It's more than that. Like, something is going on. There's, Jesus has called you to be intimate, to, to read your Bible, to pray, to fast, to give your life away. This is what we've been called to over and over and over again. And here sits a man in prison. And what would Jesus say to him if, he, if John the Baptist is sitting in this prison and Jesus would have to have a conversation? If, if instead the disciples go see Jesus, if Jesus would come to John the Baptist, what would John the Baptist hear from Jesus? So you can do whatever you want. Close your eyes or whatever it is. This um, is my favorite section, again, in all books. In less than four minutes now, you will be dead, John. How many thoughts can be crowded into one man's mind in four minutes? How many doubts? How many questions? Not many. But John, worst of all, there will be no answers. And blessed are you, John, if you are not offended with me. They have shackled you, John. The staircase is before you. The door is above you. You can see the light of day now. Why is this happening to you, John? You, of all people, your head severed from your body. Why? Because an obscene dance by a teenage girl... How ironic. You will never live to see your 33rd birthday, nor will you know exactly why I have called you to do what you do, nor will you know if your life on this earth counted for anything. Those long years in the searing desert, you denied yourself of everything this earth affords except food and water and only enough to be kept alive. You did all this for me, yet as you face death, there's no evidence that your life was anything but wasted. Have I forsaken you, John, in this last hour when you need me most? Blessed are you, John, if you're not offended with me. You've reached the head of the stairs. You're not sure which way they're going to have you turn, and a guard points you to the left. You follow. Is this really happening? You have less than one minute before the immutable blank. You recall those long vigils before my face in the desert. Did you misunderstand me? Uh, Were you mistaken? Perhaps you did not hear my voice at all. In all those years you lived alone in the desert, never once did you have the love or comfort of another human being. Will I not now extend such comfort to you at last? You never had the pleasure of your own child climbing into your lap to give you earthly joy. You never came in contact with a woman, ever. You never had a wife. You've never known intimate love. Your whole life has lived for my calling for me. Will I not now, in this last moment of your life, part the veil and allow you to see something, anything of my purpose in your life and in your death? You will die wondering why I ate and drank as I did, why I did not fast as you fasted, nor prayed as you prayed. You will die today at the hands of uncircumcised heathen Gentile Romans, but your death is not at their hands. It will only come by my sovereign permission. You will die not understanding why I allowed the seamlessly senseless acts. And blessed are you, John, if you're not offended with me. 
You will not see the multitudes cry out of my entry in Jerusalem. Neither will you see me crucified, nor hear of my resurrection and my triumph over death. You will die not knowing that you have proclaimed the coming of none the less than the Son of God. And blessed are you, John, if you are not offended with me. They have opened the gate, John, to the courtyard. There it is, the block on which you will lay your head. And there the man who is to take your life stands. You will be remembered as one of the greatest men born among women. But you will not know that, nor will you ever hear of the Son of God say, of men born among women, there is John the Baptist, none greater. Even now as you kneel, you wonder if you are a complete failure. You gave so much, poured out your life so completely, lived for God so singularly, and blessed are you, John, if you are not offended with me. John, you've now placed your head on the block. When I called you, and told you that you would announce the coming of the Messiah, you assume that because you were going to do such a great thing for me, you would have the joy of seeing that wonderful day of my coming in glory. But today you have met a God you do not understand. Such are my ways in every generation. No man has ever fully understood me. No man ever will. I will always be something other than what men expect me to be. I will work out my will in many different ways from the way that men foresee it to be worked out. The guard has shifted his weight, John. The blade is raised above you. Death stands beside you, John. Die, my brother, John. Die in the presence of a God who did not live up to your expectations. And blessed are you, John, if you're not offended with me. So if that doesn't paint a picture, like a man who gave everything, I mean, even the things that you struggle with, maybe being single, not having kids, like those things were never in the picture for him. He lived a life completely devoted to God, and he never got to see the back end. This is the road that we've been called to. Now, now hear me. This is tricky, right? Because practically, I want to leave you with this. And some of you are called to have kids and to be married and maybe to own a house. The only thing I want to put in front of you is why. Why would the creator of all things give you those things when countless thousands will die today of starvation. Why would he give you that? Why? Like, if he asks you to give, are you offended by him? If, if he asks you to move, are, are you offended by him? If he keeps things back from you, are you offended by him? Because he's the sovereign Lord of everything. And what's beautiful in this whole picture is we don't have to look to John the Baptist as the example. Because the one who holds those things back or gives those things for whatever purpose he sees fit, did exactly what he's asking you to do. As he kneels down in a garden, he says, I don't want to be crucified, but listen, not my will, but your will be done. You were told in Hebrews 12 that it's the joy that was set before him. It's the joy that was set before him. May this be our call, that, that we, would, we would not put all of our chips in this life. That everything we do in this world would be laid before Jesus' feet for the next. That we would understand everything we have is his, and in a moment, he can take it. He, he loves us so deeply, his mercy never ends, and he's called us to a road, a rugged, rugged road of discipleship. May we as a church be willing to give, may we as a church be willing to pray, fast, do what it takes to be in the will of our Father. Let's follow Jesus together. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We are uh, we're grateful for all that you've done. You tell us if any of you 
wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways and take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit or gain in this world if you lose your soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? No. No, there's not. Jesus, we we want to submit all that we have to you. We want to follow you on mission. We recognize that we are going to fail. And so we're so grateful in this path, this dirt road of discipleship that is not easy. And it's hard to pray. And it's hard to We are so grateful that you have paid the price in our failures. That it's not based on us getting right, but everything that we do of living a life that is worthy of our calling is because you have done it, not to earn it. And we're grateful for that. May that be our motivation. Some in this room are absolutely called to oversee. Some in this room are absolutely called to give all that they have. And there's some in this room who are called to live next to their neighbor because you have placed them there, because you know the boundaries of their dwelling and the time in which it was appointed. May they love their neighbors well. May they be willing to bring people into their house. May we be a people of love. May we be a people who bless others because we recognize we've been absolutely, unequivocally blessed. There's so many things we can talk about we don't have, Jesus, but I pray that you'd remind us that we have everything we need in you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We love you. In this road, we desperately, desperately need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.